Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Retail Rundown. Today, I am joined by Sarah Hofstetter. She is the president of Profitero. Profitero is a leading e-commerce performance analytics platform, and Sarah also serves on the board of directors at Campbell Soup Company and is the co-host of the Brave Commerce podcast. I don't know how you have any extra time in your day, Sarah. That sounds like a lot. Well, that is amusing. I don't know that I do, but it's like give a busy person something to do and they just kind of figure it out, or at least that's what my mom told me. Oh, (laughs) well, that's a good way to go about it, right? It's like sometimes you actually just need more and, and it just keeps rolling. Speaking of which, as we record this show, the biggest event in retail, the flagship National Retail Federation, they're doing their annual show and it's virtual this year. So they're currently in the middle of their third day. And our team has been doing some live coverage of the show. And of course, there's a lot of hot takes on e-commerce. So I wanted to chat with you about e-commerce today because I know you are an expert in that area. You know, you could have been an expert a year ago and it wouldn't even matter, (laughs) right? Everything has changed and I feel like it's a constant learning journey. And if you're not, then you're already behind the curve. It's moving at such a crazy pace. It really is. In fact, one thing that really stood out to me is our guest on last week's show, Trevor Sumner. He's the CEO of Perch Interactive. They do like in-store displays and things of that nature. And he was saying that online shopping, we all know it hit a record last year, but it also hit a record in a transformative way because the stat was 42% of the online orders made were fulfilled or delivered by local stores and micro-fulfillment centers, which is just a huge change in logistics, really. So what's your take on that? I mean, what are you hearing from your clients? It's a great question. And I think that one of the things that has been almost like not even talked about very much is how do you define what e-commerce actually is, right? Like if we were having this conversation a year ago and you asked most people who shop for regular goods and services, what does e-commerce mean? They would say shipped in a cardboard box, landing at my front door within a few days of my ordering it. Mm -hmm. And now if you ask people what e-commerce is, that could extend to... DoorDash or Uber, Instacart, Prime Fresh, curbside pickup, whatever it is. So as long as the order is digitally initiated, it's e-commerce. Now, I don't know that everybody necessarily subscribes to that, but that's the way I look at it. So if you talk about like these last mile fulfillment houses, that is the way things are moving. And frankly, it's mirroring the consumer demand. So I think the big question to ask is, As the vaccine starts penetrating more and the world moves more comfortably into shopping in store, do these habits stick? Mm -hmm. Do people go back to going to the supermarket three times a week? Do people, you know, not necessarily browse online, buy in store? Do, Do you start seeing some of those old habits coming back? And I think the answer is not that much. It takes a certain amount of time for habits to be created and then for habits to stick. I mean, we're, we're talking in January. New Year's resolutions is a perfect example of that, right? Like, <laughs> what, what, what do they say? I mean, it's by, certainly by Valentine's Day, like any of your New Year's resolutions, 90% of them just go out the window. So now that we've been living this COVID life for 10 months, the question becomes, as we kind of look forward, have people created these habits that they feel really comfortable continuing to do? If I, I would tell you a year ago, you're going to be buying your milking your ice cream and your avocados by 
e-commerce, you would say, no, I need to pick out those avocados myself. Now I'm like, I'm like, I don't care, whatever. <laughs> I need to squeeze them. Yeah. <laughs> I don't care if they're dinged. I don't care. Just, just get me an avocado so I don't have to go into a store. So I think a couple of things are kind of playing into these new habits. One is that I think people used to think that luxury of being able to buy, let's say, more impulse purchases like groceries, not exclusively groceries, beauty, drugs, whatever. I don't mean like illegal drugs, just to be clear. <laughs> um, but some of that ties to like socioeconomic abilities, like can you afford it? Will you pay a premium to have somebody to do your shopping for you on a platform like Instacart? Or will you take advantage of the massive convenience and affordability of curbside pickup? And then the other consideration is age. Like e-commerce was generally done by the non-AARP crowd. And so with more older people being immunocompromised, they adopted e-commerce as a habit in March and April that I don't know would have that that could have happened over the course of not just like that whole five, you know, we accelerated five years and five weeks. Like that could have been a decade before that actually happened. Right. I mean, you reminded me of a story. One of our advisors, he is from Italy and his 90-year-old dad was ordering groceries online at the height of the pandemic in Italy, which is just insane. I mean, think about how difficult that would be, you know, but it's happening. Yeah, for sure. I mean, my parents are 65 plus, just say. My mother became a you know, annual subscriber to Instacart. My dad was completely dependent on online grocery delivery. He was a big shift user. I mean, they they just completely adopted it. And so I think you start seeing e-commerce adoption broadening socioeconomically and just at least age-wise. And already you're starting to see new habits form. And I don't know that it's going to be always at this level, but I think it's now one of the new options, no different than the way like club, you know, evolved over the past, I guess, like what, when it really started taking off, what was it, like 20, 30 years ago? Well, do you think all retailers, one example, like a specialty outdoor retailer that is smaller, not the size of an REI, but even smaller than that, do they have to eventually pick up curbside and, and all of the, like, will it become a huge customer expectation for even local retailers? I mean, how far does it go is is my question. Well, I think a lot of it depends on what your considerations are before you purchase something, right? Like if you even look the, at the reverse behaviors of consumer electronics like 10 years ago, they would research offline and buy online. And then that's what, ha- and that's what killed so many consumer electronics stores was that they were basically showrooming for e-commerce. Right. So the question becomes, how much do you need to touch and feel something and how much real estate do you realistically need? That's why I don't think apparel is going to die anytime soon or luxury apparel certainly is going to die in terms of brick and mortar anytime soon. I think people need to have that tactile approach. And, you know, talking about outdoor, outdoor retail, I think is a very interesting one. Obviously, many, many people bought bikes online mm-hmm. because absolutely that was, you know, the, the safer more method of transport. It was your new way to exercise. I mean, like that the surge in bike purchases online was a necessity. I don't know that that's necessarily going to be the new norm nearly as much as maybe other things. I think people have gotten comfortable buying furniture online. I mean, not to the exclusion of brick and mortar necessities because, you know, different strokes for different folks. But I don't think people a year ago would have said, I'm going to buy all my furniture online 
at all socioeconomic levels, at all demographics. And on a macro level, do you agree with some of the retail execs and thought leaders I've been talking to? They're all saying smaller format stores. That's where things are headed. Yeah. You know, outside of like your Target and Walmart, your huge big boxes, but is smaller format the smarter move? Well, I mean, real estate is pretty cheap these days. (laughs) (laughs) True. um, I think you kind of have to look at, at the full economic consideration of that. But even the Walmarts and the Targets, how much of that real estate is going to be converted into dark stores and micro fulfillment? Like, again, if we were talking a year ago, you know, it was Amazon at the top of the list and like every Omni retailer, you know, as a, you wouldn't even call them a fast follower. And now you look at these guys that actually their original liability of the real estate is a tremendous asset in terms of micro fulfillment. So I think a smaller footprint store may make sense for the uh, consumer shopper experience, but it may be just a great reconsideration of purposing for last mile facilitation. And that always brings me to the topic of malls. I mean, where where's your standpoint on malls? Do you think we are going to see a huge shift to them becoming dark stores and fulfillment centers? I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm of multiple minds. I also think I probably romanticize my childhood a little bit more. Yeah, me too. I miss the malls. <laughs> gotta say. Yeah. I mean, when I was in high school and college, that was a place to be. And so not having that is just odd to me, but that doesn't mean that that's the way behavior is today. So I don't know. I think jury's out on malls or at least in my head. And if we come back to analytics, because it's becoming so important for in-store retailers from bottom-up and top-down perspectives, just to create the feedback loop so you know what works, what doesn't work, do you think that retailers are expecting too much of their store associates when it comes to data and creating insights that really make a difference? Well, I don't know if that necessarily has to be the burden of the store associates, but it does have to be the obligation of the retailer. Mm -hmm. So where that sits organizationally is a good question. I have many friends that run small businesses and they are getting these advanced degrees in analytics and continuing ed just by virtue of the necessity of it all. But I think it all ties back to the retailer's mindset. And retailers with a growth mindset aren't hung up on the past almost like the way I was with the mall about two minutes ago. (laughs) Um, But we saw that even in the, gosh, what was it? I saw a stat back over a year ago. So it was like Q4 of 2019, where they were saying that um, Walmart had either reported or it was a story that I'd read that 30,000 Walmart associates were being trained to be online pickers. And that was another part of their job. So if your question is along the lines of like, are we expecting too much of store associates in general because now their jobs are a lot different than what they were trained for, I would say maybe. At the same time, you're upskilling people and making them more marketable for their next job. So I wouldn't knock it at all. And I would say, clearly, Walmart had the right mindset to say, this is something that we see coming. Did they see it coming nearly as fast? I don't know. But those retailers are also thinking about that new shopper journey. And that new shopper journey starts in search more than it starts when you walk into the store. Mm -hmm. And so if you're not on page one of search results within that retailer, your brick and mortar equivalent is like being on the bottom shelf in an aisle that's not your category. I had a client once tell me that the mafia could use page two of search results to hide dead bodies. That's funny. That's a good analogy because I I think it's so true. I mean, I can't remember the last time I've ever clicked on the second page to search results. Well, 
I, I have, and here's why. And well, also, I like to walk a mile in my shopper shoes, but also because I don't necessarily think that retailers have optimized the search experience that well yet. Retailers just aren't as good at Google at search optimization against keywords. Right. So sometimes I'll be looking for something and I know the store carries it. And for some reason, it's not showing up in search. And so that's an onus on the retailer. It's an onus on the supplier as well to say, wait, I have to make sure I'm optimizing my content. I'm optimizing my advertising. So if you're spending all your like shopper dollars on floor decals and, you know, in-store promos and end caps, if the consumer's never walking into the store, it's garbage. Absolutely. And that comes back to marketing and advertising, but also their inventory management, which I think we've seen some stellar work from Target and the likes when it comes to that. But that's another huge challenge. I mean, it's one of the biggest challenges because it's the totality of the supply chain. And I also think that there's a misalignment on consumer expectations to a certain degree. A misalignment, like it's too high or? Yeah, it's too high. So for example, let's just say I was shopping in Target for, I'll use my Campbell example. I'm looking for Campbell's signature tomato soup. I want to get tomato soup. Let's say I'm going to do a three shift. And so I put it in my cart and I go to check out and then the picker goes to go get it. And shockingly, it's not there anymore. Why isn't it there? Because there's literally another human being walking around with a physical shopping cart that has already taken that off the shelf. You can't expect Target to have that can immediately picked off the shelf in a store where you actually have people shopping. And that's the way things are turning over. And that's why product is turning over so quickly. So the idea of availability and being able to track availability in real time has been a major disappointment from a consumer perspective. But I don't know that how you immediately resolve real-time availability without it being like an Amazon Go type situation that you immediately get charged the minute you take it off the shelf. Yeah, that's that's a tricky one. I have heard some people say, well, they need to just reformat their stores and make a section in the back just for picking with the highest purchased items or the most purchased items. A hundred percent. That's a huge overhaul. I mean, the cost is outrageous to do that for a lot of retailers. Well, the cost is outrageous. It's a reformulation. It's going to be big CapEx to re reimagine what the store floor looks like. But that goes back to the question about real estate. That's where data and analytics come in, right? What are the things that are being more frequently ordered online versus more frequently being picked up in store? And do we have enough seasonal data to know what that's going to look like over time? So what worked for you in December is not going to work for you in January because in December you were cooking for the holidays and in January you're trying to be healthy. That's a very different... So even your analytics, you don't have enough of a history of what's more likely to be bought online versus in store to be able to do that predictive analytics on saying, okay, so here's what I should be storing in my dark store version of the store versus the showrooming or the the in-store experience. But you're right. You're absolutely right in that. That's where we have to move to. But I think creating that balance is going to take a little bit of time. And just consumers need to be educated on that kind of stuff. They do. And it, it, there's a balance between being perfect and getting it right and moving quickly. And what would your advice be considering, you know, a retailer that doesn't have that kind of historical data to do the predictive analytics and have great confidence in their inventory? Well, I think that that is, is a little bit of... It's a job of different components of the industry, myself included at, at Proftero because we're a data analytics provider is to be working hand in hand 
brands and retailers to try to understand what that battle rhythm is, which we're, we're all getting different points of data. You're getting EPOS, you're getting in-store, you're getting basket size, you're getting a lot of information. It's how you process it. And then how do you render that out to the consumer? And I don't know if it's a question. I really, I legitimately don't know if it's a question of that the retailers don't want to manage the expectations of the consumers too much because they don't want to be at risk of disappointing them. So they'll just go to a different retailer, right? Like, let's say the whole experience of me buying tomato soup happens, but instead of me adding it to cart, I get a notification saying, this is in stock as of right now. By the time the picker gets to it, it may not be in stock anymore. I'm going to walmart.com like that. Mm -hmm. But if walmart.com also says that, then we've created a unified expectation for the consumer. So I think that that's going to be almost like industry momentum in order for us to get that happening. And I think we can all do a better job of trying to like I said earlier, walk a mile in our in our shopper's shoes mm-hmm. and think about what we need to do as an industry to make that experience as positive as possible. And that includes expectation management. And, and when it comes to expectation management, and you said creating a unified expectation from customers because the retailers are saying the same thing, hey, we don't have the tomato soup, or we do, but it might not be here when you get to it. Do you think there's a good momentum when it comes to retailers sharing data? Because, I mean, when it comes to seasonal shopper data, I think in a lot of categories, there could be overlap if you anonymize it. Is that something that's happening or is there too many rules around it? Uh, It's a great question. Gosh, how do I say this without offending anybody? (laughs) Um, (laughs) Just just offend them, Sarah. Okay, I'll, I'll just go for it. So here's the thing. I think that retailers right now are looking for lots of sources of revenue media being one of them and data being another one. So sometimes that data is for sale and maybe it should just be an expectation that that's what you get when you actually put the money in. So the question is, who's got the power in this brand retailer relationship? And that's been a power struggle for forever. I read this book, highly recommended, called The Secret Life of Groceries. It's a geeking out kind of book, but I actually read, I found out about it by reading the New York Times book review. So it can't be that geeking out. But it talks about like how everything, like the origins of the supermarket and the origins of supply chain and all these different components and like doing ride-alongs with truckers and all this cool stuff that helps you get to this point. Oh, interesting. Yeah, you would totally geek out on it. Like it kind of goes through that dynamic between the brand and retailer and kind of who has more control in that relationship. And now with D2C, that, that control might balance a little bit better, but... Brands have always struggled with the fact that they don't have the direct relationship with the consumer. Mm -hmm. Social media made that a lot easier to bridge that gap. But ultimately, when it comes time to buying the product, you walk into that store and all the data is owned by the retailer. So do they want to monetize that data and sell it back to the brands in addition to the cost of distribution? These are all kinds of questions that have to get answered. And I think people are going to look to the left and to the right and say, hey, what's that guy doing? What's that guy doing? And I'm not going to say it's all going to work itself out. And then you've got more like newer, not necessarily retailers, but intermediaries like Instacarts and Drizzlies and those guys definitely looking at the data as a revenue generation opportunity. A thousand percent. I think about that sometimes when I'm using Instacart. I'm like, who are they anonymizing my data and selling this to about, you know, what I buy? Everyone. Yeah, everyone. <laughs> everyone and their mother and brother. Anyone who will pay. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it is helpful in terms of creating the experience that 
consumers want. And I, I'm blown away when I look at apps like Ibotta, which clearly they're just paying you for your data. I've seen recently a few new ones pop up that people are sharing, especially millennials. I don't know about Gen Z, but I don't think they care. They sell their data left and right. If you can get $10 gift card for Amazon to upload your Publix receipt or whatever, wherever you shop. Yeah, I think it's not necessarily generational. I think it's just more about what's in it for me. Right. I mean, think about Facebook 10 years ago. It was very clear that your your data was getting sold. <laughs> um, but was the value exchange worth it to you? And so it's just all about what is that value exchange? So whether it's Ibotta, Fetch Rewards, there's a whole bunch of the companies like this. The disclosure is pretty darn clear. Give us your pre-II. Mm-hmm. And we'll give you movie tickets <laughs> and or cash or whatever it is. And I do think that there is a very fair value exchange in those kinds of things. So long as so long as everybody's above board about what you're giving and what you're getting. But that data, I think that data is super rich. Like I'm I'm very much into that kind of stuff. Again, so long as people are into it. But if you look at like any of those, like like a Fetch or an Ibotta, you see a lot of those members are middle America moms, who's your primary household shopper. Mm -hmm. So those are the kinds of people that brands want to be reaching. When it comes to China and how retail is much different, much more tech enabled there for many reasons, but um, how they're using WeChat stores and creating these small communities in WeChat. And it's, it's almost like reverting back to like SMS marketing because you're part of this community in the store and they message you all the time. Do you think we'll get to that here in the West? As with most things that migrate over, whether from China or I always, I often look to Korea and Singapore as almost like a a look ahead of like could be 12, could be 18 months. It could be even longer to say, what are certain trends and what are the cultural levers that also still need to be in place for those things to take off? Mm -hmm. And privacy becomes the big question mark when you start moving from behaviors in China to behaviors, let's just say, in democratic states. Mm -hmm. Or especially the EU, right? Right. And certainly the EU, when you talk about GDPR, like, not every behavior or technology will be adopted because you can't figure out a way to make that compliant, if you will. So social shopping, which I think is, you know, the underpinnings of a WeChat, I think for sure is here to stay. One of the things that I always find interesting about what I try to explain to an old school salesperson, the difference between selling in store and selling online is that there isn't somebody that's sitting at shelf that's giving you feedback on the product, like the way social media will, like the way ratings and reviews will, like the way contextual content will. And that's a big part of the whole social shopping experience that has thrived in China. And I think to a certain degree has been thriving in the States. I mean, gosh, if you look back to at least 10 years ago, definitely at least 10 years ago, remember e-bags? Mm-hmm. I mean, they were one of the first ones that really valued that feedback loop. And people would make decisions based on online reviews, which does not seem like a radical concept today. <laughs> but eBags took great market share early on because of that. And so I think that there's there are definitely certain elements from China that I think will make its way over to the States, to the EU, to the UK, because that's not part of the EU anymore. 
we just have to be mindful about what are the macro issues that have nothing to do with what we do for a living that would either inhibit it or adapt it. That's a good answer. And it's just so different. Like you said, the cultural levers are huge when you look at any of these trends and will they come here or not and have that debate. Is there anything that you would say retailers should definitely be doing if if they're not already, given 2020 and 2021 as we've entered this also <laughs> tumultuous year? Yeah, I find it so hilarious when I was you know, December 31st when people were saying, can't wait for 2021. It's going to be so different. I'm like, why? <laughs> why is it going to be any different? I know. It's that mindset. We just think like, oh, the next day, it's a new year, new number. Yeah, not happening. But <laughs> it's... As we saw. Yes. I saw this great... Um, maybe it was a meme. I don't even remember what it was. But I saw this picture of the Joker talking to um, Pennywise from It. Oh, gosh. And so they had the Joker's 2020 Pennywise as 2021 and says, welcome to the neighborhood. <laughs> oh, God. <That's, laughs> yeah, it's a good way to put it. And he's like in the gutter looking out. Pretty much. It's pretty awful. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but on a positive note, looking out, I think what retailers really can be doing is having that growth mindset. Like in the same way that Walmart was looking in Q4 about how do we train people and click and collect. And this is one of the hardest things for big dated companies to do is to say, if I were dropped on this planet today, And I looked to the left and the right and I said, what would I do if I was starting today? And then say, okay, how do I figure out how to make that so within the confines of what I can do versus how do I make these like little incremental changes? We need to think exponential. And the questions that you were asking earlier, both about shopping behavior, dark stores, segmenting stores, micro fulfillment, these are conversations that were theoretical a year ago that are mandatory now. So I think it's just more a matter of figuring out how to have that growth mindset, not get hung up on the past, and not overshooting to the point where you say, oh my God, we need innovation at all costs. And you forget about the fact that there still are plenty of people that will go into a store and purchase product. Right. Like I understand I'm in the e-commerce space. I'm also a realist. That isn't completely subsuming brick and mortar. It's just a bigger player than it was expected to be. You don't have to think as big as Elon Musk getting us to Mars by selling all his assets. But I love what you said about if you were dropped on the planet today, what would you do? Because that question could span all industries, I think. It's a healthy way of not being held back by what seems to be possible. That's a great note. I think we can wrap there. Again, today's guest, Sarah Hofstetter, president of Profit Tarot. Thank you so much for joining the rundown and sharing your insights. Thank you. I'm honored to be a part of this. Thank you so much, Julia. You've been listening to the Rethink Retail podcast. If you would like to be considered as a guest on our show, apply at rethink.industries slash podcast guest. For sponsorship opportunities, send us an email at media at rethink.industries. You can help support our team at Rethink Retail by dropping us a rating and review on your iTunes podcast app. To each and every one of you, thanks so much for tuning in. Retail never sleeps. See you next week.